If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We will read our text later on in the sermon, so just keep it handy. It may seem that I have things out of sequence, as I spoke about Palm Sunday last Sunday, and we'll touch on the events of Holy Week today. But my intent is to prepare us particularly in our thinking as we consider these events that happened centuries ago. And without question, I'm a historian by training, I mean, we know that as time passes, our understanding of an event can change. And that understanding can be wrong and can become a misunderstanding of the event and its significance. But on the other hand, it doesn't require the passage of time for us to misunderstand an event. We can be there when it happens and still not understand what is going on. Such is the case for what we call Palm Sunday, that is today. And in my opinion, and I'll try to make a case for it, if we get Palm Sunday wrong, it will certainly affect how we view the events that follow. To review a bit. Um, we saw last Sunday, in the story of Palm Sunday, two truths are illustrated. The first truth is the, the authority of Jesus, and the second is the humility of Jesus. Authority and then humility. There are two parts of the story that we looked at last week in Matthew 21. The first part involves Jesus sending two disciples into the next village. They were in Bethphage, and he sends them on to the next village. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. In here, we see the two truths. First of all, his authority, he gives them instructions. And then he tells them, listen, if anybody asks you about, you know, what are you doing? They say anything to you, say the Lord needs them. And in the words just spoken, we also find his humility. The Lord needs them. One would expect that being the Lord or a person in, of great authority means in part that you need nothing. If you want something, you tell someone to go and get it, or you simply take it yourself. But in the humility of Jesus, he speaks of need. He sends for the donkeys because he is going to enter Jerusalem on his own terms. No one should think, in fact, that he is proclaimed the Messiah by the crowds, and that's why he is the Messiah. In John chapter 6, we have the story of when Jesus fed the 5,000, and, and the people were so enthralled with what he did, they wanted to make him king. And so John writes, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The crowd will not proclaim him Messiah. He is the Messiah, and now is the time for this to be acknowledged. He allows himself to be acclaimed and acknowledged as the one sent by God. And yet there is humility. The second part of this story is what we know as the events of Palm Sunday when he rides into Jerusalem. And again, we see the two truths of authority and humility. Your king comes to you, we read. This is Jesus as king, the Messiah, the son of David. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that day, he is the fulfillment of God's promises to his Old Testament people. The crowds announce him, but just to remind you from last Sunday, if you look at how Matthew constructs his gospel, 
the last story right before Palm Sunday is when Jesus is in Jericho and there are two blind men and they call on him. Jesus, son of David, heal us. And Jesus allows their testimony to stand. Prior to that, prior to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. He heals the leper and he says, make sure you don't tell anyone. He tells Peter, don't tell anyone. The, the disciples that are on the Mount of Transfiguration, wait until I'm raised from the dead. But it is two blind men who proclaim him as Messiah. And so now when we come to Palm Sunday and the crowds are saying, Hosanna, they are merely repeating what has already been revealed by these two men in Jericho. So we see his authority, that he is the king, but his humility is that he comes in on a donkey, not a white horse or any horse for that matter, does not come in as a conqueror, but rather comes on a donkey, a beast of burden. He does not come to oppress or to terrify, but to help his people, to carry their burden, to take them on himself. And this is the humility of the king, the king on a donkey. But there's something else, and I mentioned this last week. In, the, in our prayer of confession today, the promise of forgiveness, we read from Matthew 9, I'm sorry, from Zechariah 9, 9, which Matthew quotes, but Matthew leaves out what to me is the most important line of the verse. The entire verse says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew leaves out the line, righteous and having salvation. Isn't that the whole point of why Jesus has come? One translation has vindicated and victorious, and Matthew leaves that out. Why does he leave it out? I can only speculate, but I think what Matthew wants us to see is the humility. He wants us to see the lowliness of Jesus. The crowds gives us, give us the picture of authority. Matthew wants us to remember his humility. As I said last week, I find it interesting that the church, and in fact, uh, different translations of the Bible, if they have headings, call this the triumphal entry. I think Matthew would be appalled at this. He's like, did you people not get the story here? Do you not get what I'm trying to say? It is not a triumphal entry, it is a modest entry. Yes, he is the Messiah. He is the son of David, the king, the Lord. And the crowds see this. So they do what they do for a king. They put out palm branches and cloaks on the ground so that the donkey will not touch the road. The crowd wants to think of the palms. They want to think of the king. Matthew wants us to think about the donkeys. This is the humility of Christ. And I am convinced that if we get that wrong, it's sort of a domino effect, we will get so many other things wrong as well. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a passage in Albert Schweitzer's classic work, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, in which he presents, for my money, a radically different vision of Jesus from what is presented in the Gospels. This is a passage that I found. Soon after that, that is after John, comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, 
lays hold on the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. He's trying to move the wheel of history. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. As one writer notes, Schweitzer's Jesus turns out to be Nietzsche's Superman in Galilean garb. Now, there are many reasons why Schweitzer came to the conclusion that he did. However, I can't help but thinking that part of it is a misunderstanding of Palm Sunday. Somewhere it's in there. Somehow this triumphal entry, as many people see it, is seen as a failure, that somehow Jesus failed to recognize the realities of the situation which would lead to his death within the week. That somehow Jesus misread the crowd, the polling numbers, if you wish, and thought things were going his way, only to have them turn tragically against him. And so his death becomes a tragedy, or even a martyrdom, rather than his obedience to the Father's will. As another author has uh, mentioned about Schweitzer's view, Schweitzer's rhetoric conveys notes of tragedy and irony in the death of Jesus upon the cross. According to Schweitzer, Jesus' mangled body is still hanging on the implacable wheel of history, the image of one of an irresistible force that overwhelmed Jesus of Nazareth in history and still holds him in its power. Schweitzer portrayed Jesus as trying to force the hand of history to usher in the messianic kingdom. But as another one, another writer has wisely noted, a servant of God in the biblical tradition does not attempt to bend history to serve his desired ends. And there's no evidence that Jesus tried to do this. As I've suggested, Schweitzer had, I think, different reasons for his views, including when and where he lived, his culture, the surrounding culture. But what about us? Why would we still hold on to this notion of the triumphal entry? As I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, we live in a culture, in a society that works by an economic logic. That is to say, the belief is that effort leads to reward. Input leads to output. Investment leads to profit. What we see on the day we call Palm Sunday is in fact an inverse logic, a moral logic. You have to give to receive. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. These are truths we've heard from Jesus during his teaching ministry. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And then earlier in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What we find in Jesus and what we find on Palm Sunday, I am convinced, is in fact, is in fact an inverse logic, a moral logic. And so we should not see this as a triumphal entry. We should see this as Jesus, who is the Lord, in his humility coming, riding on a donkey. What Jesus taught we see reflected in his actions on that Sunday. And what we need to think about and think deeply about is what logic do we follow or embrace? What do we consider to have happened on Palm Sunday? Are we using an economic logic? and therefore his death becomes all the more tragic 
because he misread the crowd? Or do we see this through a moral logic as a modest entry? I'm convinced that on Palm Sunday, we do see this inverse logic. Easter is coming. There is no question. But before that, there is the modest entry. There is the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal, the trials, the denials, the scourging, the crucifixion, the mocking, the death. In a word, we see him in his humility. A side note, if you'll allow me to digress a bit. What we find in the Gospels is a story that Jesus came into the world and evil sought to destroy him at every hand and the kingdom that he was announcing. And indeed, Jesus met with a violent death as evil sought to destroy him. What we see in the death of Jesus, and we remember it this week, is a point at which evil of all kinds and in all its forms come rushing together, political, religious, spiritual, they all come together to seek to destroy this man. The night Jesus was arrested, as Luke records it, Jesus speaks to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, the elders who have come for him. He asks them, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And yet it is interesting, in the 20th century, we're now in the 21st century, but we see in the 20th century, when it comes to the issue of good and evil, philosophers, particularly German philosophers like Heidegger and Nietzsche, um, see these as childish notions. They don't want to talk about good and evil. What matters is will and choice. Self-assertion is seen as the highest value. So choices are important. They're only worthwhile if they are authentic choices. Forget morality. Don't be concerned about morality. Is this an authentic choice? And having had a profound impact on the regime that arose in Germany, we see what is the result of that. But I would argue that while some might see Heidegger and Nietzsche, when it comes to the matter of good and evil, as sort of setting aside conventional morality, that they focus on will and choice, that they talk about self-assertion, the will to power. These things are still with us in our culture in different forms. As a result, our culture, and we are part of that culture, tends to have economic rather than moral ethics. And this impacts how we view Palm Sunday and the events that follow. Do these events portray one great tragedy are they a demonstration of the humility of Jesus? Today I'd like to look at what is probably a very familiar text to most of you in Philippians chapter 2. I want to look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For some of us, the King James is what comes to mind here when we hear this verse, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, the NIV has your attitude. 
for, for me, I prefer the King James because it speaks of the mind that we should have. And we're not looking at what comes previous to this, but Paul is writing to the Philippians who apparently in the congregation aren't getting along. And he wants them to have the mind of Christ. And so what he says in the English Standard Version has, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, he isn't simply saying to each one of us individually, uh, Damon, you need to have the mind of Christ. I think that is there. But I think rather he is saying to the people of God, to the church of Melrose, we should among ourselves, in and among ourselves, we are to have the mind of Christ. And what is this mind of Christ? Well, first of all, he speaks in verses 6 and 7. And he speaks of things which could not have been observed. These are the, if you wish, ahistorical or non-historical things. In contrast to his earthly ministry, which he will get to in a bit. What is essential in the heart of this passage is that in his existence prior to coming into, in, in the incarnation to earth, Jesus demonstrated what equality with God meant. Not taking advantage of it for himself, but by emptying himself, by taking the role of a servant and becoming one of us. This is, I think, a difficult verse in part because it's in English and, and not in Greek, and most of us don't do Greek. Um, let me see if I can open it up a bit and give us a better understanding. First of all, what does Paul mean when he says being in the form of God? If you have an NIV, there's a footnote at the bottom of the page that says being in the form of God. Um, why doesn't he just say as God, Jesus who was God? Well, let's begin with the word being. We might think that it comes from the word to be, but in fact it comes from the verb to exist. That is to say it describes a person's very essence which cannot be changed. That is to say, Jesus, in his pre-existence, before he became a man, was in fact existing in the form of God. Okay, okay, that's the being. What about form? In the New Testament, there are two different words that are used, and in fact, both are found in this passage that are translated in English as form. The first is the word morphe, which means a form that does not change. It is essentially who you are. In Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness, that is to the form of his son, that which does not change. So we have morphe on the one hand, the unchanging. On the other, we have schema, which is the outward form, which changes from time to time, from circumstance to circumstance. 1 Corinthians 7, 20, uh, 31. For those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for the world in its present form is passing away. That is to say, the schema, things are changing. And this is what we would use of a person, that we begin as a baby, an infant, a toddler, uh, pre-teen, teenager, young adult, adult, and they speak of the golden years. The schema changes. But the morphe does not. We still are human. Nothing can take away our humanness. Our deficiencies, disease, perhaps mental deterioration, disfigurement. So when Paul writes of Christ here, whose being, his existence, 
whose form, his never-changing essence, this is what Paul is talking about, that Jesus was essentially, and in a sense he's repeating himself, being, in essence, and morphe, something that does not change. Jesus, in fact, is and was God. So what does Paul then mean when he talks about something to be grasped? If, in fact, Jesus, if Christ is God in eternal form, and that cannot change, then why does he talk about something to be grasped? The King James has robbery, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the verb points to something that you are seizing or somehow stealing, taking away. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you take something that does not belong to you? Well, obviously for personal advantage. And Paul is telling the Philippians and us, if we will listen, that part of being in the form of God is seen in the fact that Christ did not think he needed to take advantage of equality with God. Equality with God was, in fact, what Jesus had essentially before he came into the world. Christ was essentially, in essence, God. Christ had existence as God. These could not be taken away or given up. And this is important because there are many people who point to this passage who then tell us, in fact, that Jesus never claimed to be God, that he did not somehow try to grasp, somehow say, I am God. And so they see him only as human. No, Jesus, in fact, was God. He was God. And then we are told that he emptied himself, made himself nothing, the NIV has. The King James has made himself of no reputation. This stands in direct contrast to vain conceit or empty glory. God is not an acquisitive being. Should I repeat that? God is not an acquisitive being, grasping and seizing, but he is self-giving for the sake of others. You may remember in the series that we saw on creation that giving and receiving is life. Taking and keeping is death. And God is life. So we should not be surprised one whit that we see the giving and the receiving. And so Jesus and the word that Paul uses speaks of emptying out a pitcher where you pour something out until it is empty. Jesus emptied himself. What does this mean? If in fact he is God, the form of God, morphe, that does not change, then how can he empty himself? What does this mean? Well, he took on the form of a servant, not as Lord, but as servant. How could he make himself nothing and still be God? Well, we read in different passages, particularly in Paul's letters, though, for his, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. In John 17, he gave up his heavenly glory, the glory I had with you before the world began, he says to the Father in prayer. And in John 5, we read, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just for I do not seek to please myself. He gave up his independent exercise of authority. He took on the form of a servant. Question now. We've talked about morphe and schema. If I were to ask you which of these two words do you think Paul uses when it comes to servant? 
one might be tempted to say that in fact it is schema because he comes as a servant, he takes on this as a change. But in fact, the word that Paul uses is morphe. It shows that Jesus wasn't play acting. He wasn't pretending to be a servant. He took on the form, the nature, the essence of what it means to be a servant. Then why in human likeness rather than in his humanity? And here we see that Paul uses the word schema in human form. Why? Well, because we have the story of Jesus' conception, of his birth, of his childhood. We are told of him being hungry, of him being thirsty, of being tired. Circumstances changed. We are not always the same. Paul wants us to know that his humanity did not diminish his deity. It was a means for him to be a servant, to empty himself, and to become obedient. Throughout the centuries, the church has tried to express the truth of the incarnation, if you wish, of the morphe and the schema, of someone who is divine and also human. The Westminster Confession says two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, very God and very man, yet one Christ. What Paul seeks to tell us here is here comes Jesus into the world as God, taking on the form of humanity, taking on the role of a servant to humble himself and to be obedient to death. Look at verse number eight, if you would. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we find in this verse, in the sentence, is a parallel to the previous sentence. Christ's mode of existence. Now we see him as a man. Emptying himself, we saw earlier, now he has humbled himself. He takes on the form of a servant. Now we hear him, read of him being obedient. And becoming as a man, we read of his death on a cross. The major difference, I think, between verse 8 and the two verses that come before it is that verses six and seven are full of metaphors and mysteries. Verse eight is straightforward and literal. It tells how the divine self-emptying one, that is Jesus, showed the same mindset in his humanity. See, Jesus wasn't simply humble in being here on earth. We see this even before he comes to earth. In his deity, Christ emptied himself. In his humanity, he is obedient. And so we read what there was a time in my life I found quite troubling. It was written in Hebrews 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And immediately we're taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the next line is what troubled me. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He was humble and he learned obedience. He was obedient even to death on a cross, a death that was painful, a death that was shameful. Cicero calls it the death of a slave. 
a death that is one of someone who has been cursed from Deuteronomy 21, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. In the coming days, between now and Easter, we will remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal by Judas, his disciples abandoning him at the first sign of trouble, the trials before religious and political figures, the denials, the three denials by Peter, the scourging by the soldiers, the crucifixion itself, the mocking by his enemies, and finally his death. As we all well know, this is not the end of the story. And you might be thinking, yes, it's Damon, it's not even the end of the passage in Philippians chapter 2, because it goes on in verses 9, 10, and 11. I know that. But I don't want us to gloss over these events and rush ahead to the glory of Easter. We need to remember them and what they represent, particularly the humility and the humiliation of Jesus. And if nothing else, in the words of Paul, to have the mind of Christ, which involves not an economic logic, almost a modern form of karma, if you wish, but an inverse logic, where you lose your life in order to get it, instead of hanging on to your life and then losing it. And here we see Jesus submitting and giving his life it will be given back to him. The wonder of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But let's not skip ahead. Let us, in our thinking, in our lives this coming week, consider and walk through what Jesus went through and see the emptying of himself and his suffering to better appreciate what is, in fact, the right logic that we are to give ourselves up in order to get ourselves. We are to lose in order to gain. This is what we see in Jesus. And it all begins on this day, on Palm Sunday. If we see this as the triumphal entry, that Jesus is really whipping up the crowd and everyone is great and he thinks everything's going his way and then it suddenly turns against him, we will have missed the whole point. Jesus is Lord, but he is servant, and he comes in on a donkey. He comes in humbly, modestly, not proclaimed initially by the crowds, but by two blind guys in Jericho. Those are the great announcers, like the shepherds when he was born, like the women after the resurrection. These are witnesses most people would not care to have. But that's because our thinking is, is wrong. The blind men announce him, and the crowd sort of picks up on that, but he comes in modestly. And I think we really need to get a hold of that, and by God's grace, have it transform our thinking. Let's pray together. Father, we live where you have put us, this place, this time, this culture. 
and every generation of your people has had to fight against different things. I, I think that we have to fight against wrong thinking, somehow turning our backs on Jesus and imagining that the way to get ahead is to promote yourself, to blow your own horn, to pad your resume, to tell people how great you are. And somehow we baptize that with Christianese, with Christian language, and we even see Palm Sunday in that light instead of seeing it as an act of humility and of modesty as Jesus comes into Jerusalem knowing that he is going to die. He submits himself. He empties himself. It does seem oftentimes that if we don't If we don't promote ourselves, if we don't do things for ourselves, then people will not notice who we are. We won't get to where we want to go. And so we buy into an economic logic. And we forget that your grace is what sustains us all along the way. May each of us in this coming week be reminded of the events that are represented. The prayers in Gethsemane. The betrayal with a kiss. Being abandoned by his disciples, being denied by Peter. Being mocked by soldiers and finally being crucified. And then having died, being laid in somebody else's tomb. May we not gloss over these things and think of them as, well, just things we need to get out of the way so we can get to Easter. But they, in fact, reflect profound truth of the humility of Jesus, a mindset that we are supposed to have as well. We pray for those that aren't with us, that you would keep them in your care. For those that will be traveling this week for Tess and for Ruth as she comes back. For each one of us in the coming week, may you watch over us. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And we pray this through Jesus who has made this all possible. And in his name. Amen.